Terry. Appreciate that song that goes along with the 51st Psalm, which was read for us earlier. It's time to dismiss kids to the for Children's Church. So uh, those of you that are in that category, on your way. <laughs> Stay here, John. <laughs> it's good to see a couple of ladies that have been playing, playing hooky the last couple of uh, f- uh, few weeks. Uh, but uh, back from surgery, uh, Donna and, uh, and uh, uh, Carol... Donna Sheldon and Carol Ryan, both having head surgery and back with us again uh, today. And uh, so good. We've been praying for you. And you know, uh, it's been a long time since I have had the opportunity to preach to this congregation two Sundays in a row. Can you believe that? And um, with a new associate pastor, um, coming some of these days. Uh, who knows when I'll be standing behind this pulpit again. So I'd better take full advantage of this opportunity. Got to thinking, you know, two Sundays. Pastor Jim keeps telling me that I try to cram too much into a sermon. And uh, I suppose he's right, but, you know, I have so many things I want to say. And uh, so here... Two sermons, what should we do? I thought, uh, should I do um, an exposition of the book of Romans? Uh, Or maybe uh, a complete exposition of Leviticus. How would that be? uh, And if there's any time left over, we'll cover the book of Revelation. Uh, Well, seriously, uh, as a follow-up to Pastor Jim's uh, sermon last Sunday on revival, and as a sort of a a lead-in to his coming series on the book of Acts, it seemed good uh, to us, as Pastor Jim and I talked about it, to place an emphasis on evangelism. So today, it will be, as you see in your sermon notes in the bulletin there, evangelism, bringing people to Christ. And next Sunday, it's going to be evangelism, bringing Christ to people. So there's those two aspects of evangelism that we'll be dealing with today and, Lord willing, next Sunday. But first, I want to try to define what we mean by evangelism. And by the way, that I did not plan that passage from Psalm 51, uh, this song that you, that you sang, Terry, uh, fits so much into the theme of evangelism. and You know, God giving us a clean heart and all of that. Now, sometimes the term evangelism conjures up uh, images of wild-eyed fanatics or uh, obnoxious nerds who uh, try to force their beliefs on people unfortunate enough to have failed to escape from them. (laughs) But sensitive and sensible Christians say, I don't want to be like that. And... You know, I think we're all, I hope we're all agreed on that. But, but that is an aberration. That uh, idea of evangelism is, um, is, evangelism is more sane than that stereotype. Sometimes, um, well, evangelism is simply an obedient response to Jesus' final command that we go into all the world to tell of his saving grace. Someone has said, evangelism is simply nobody 
simply a nobody telling everybody about somebody who will save anybody. Pretty good definition. Here's a better one. Evangelism is the act of introducing Jesus Christ to the lost so that they might respond by accepting or rejecting the gift of eternal life that God offers to everyone. Now I'm going to say that again. This comes, for those who are old-timers around this church, this comes out of TNET. Some of you will remember TNET was a, was a program that we engaged in uh, quite a few years ago. And in that context, we had this definition. Listen, I'm going to read it again. Listen, evangelism is the act of introducing Jesus Christ to the lost so that they might respond by accepting or rejecting the gift of eternal life that God offers everyone. That's evangelism. I want us to understand something about this right away. And this is the way I heard it expressed by an evangelist years ago by the name of Reg Dunlop. And Dunlop says this, We are not responsible for converting people, but we are responsible for contacting them. Not to redeem the world, but to reach the world. Not to win people, but to witness to them. It's God's responsibility to bring about the conversions. It's God's responsibility to to bring about the response. But it is our responsibility to share the message of the gospel. One more definition. This is the simplest of them all. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And I'm kind of like that one too. With the conviction that evangelism is every Christian's responsibility, I'd like to pursue that subject with you. First of all, by looking at a biblical character who is seen bringing people to Christ. His name is Andrew, and he's one of the 12 apostles. He's not nearly as prominent as his brother Peter, but... And when we see Andrew in action, and there are only three brief instances, each of those instances recorded in the Gospel of John, each time we see him, he is bringing someone to Jesus. And thus, he provides a good example for us. Evangelism, bringing people to Christ. But when we bring people to Jesus, what will they hear What do we want them to hear? What do we want them to know? It's the gospel. And the gospel is this. And I, you know, I want to make this plain. I I have a conviction that in every sermon I preach, I want someplace, somewhere in that sermon, for the way of salvation to me be made plain to people. And if there's somebody here today who has not received Jesus as your Savior, you can't say, I know that my sins are forgiven. I'm a possessor of eternal life. Pay attention. What is the gospel? Let's go back to Psalm 51, which was used earlier in the service, and notice that David is the writer. And in verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, that does not mean that that it was a sinful act by which the conception took place. No, he says, I was born in sin from the moment of of my birth, from the moment of my conception. I am a sinner. We are sinners by nature. David acknowledges that. And so part of the gospel is to recognize that we're sinners. 
But then he goes on and he makes the, the plea, purify me with hyssop. Now, hyssop was the plant. Um, and the leaves were dipped into the blood and the blood was sprinkled on the altar back in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he says, uh, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Here's the psalmist recognizing his sin and recognizing his need for cleansing. And by the way, in that, in that uh, psalm, there's verse 13, which was not read, and it has to do with evangelism. He says, when all this happens, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. So the psalmist is recognizing when he receives that cleansing, there's evangelism that comes out of it, and he is going to teach others the way of Christ. But, you know, we know the rest of the story. In that Old Testament setting, there was a dependence on the Old Testament sacrificial system. But finally, Jesus comes, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And he provides the perfect sacrifice. And so now we know the rest of the story. And it's, it's best put in, I think, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the opening verses uh, say this, that, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he rose again according the third day according to the scriptures. That's the core of the gospel. And we need to preach the we need to preach the cross. We need to preach the gospel. We and the focus of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross in our place and he rose again. And we by faith respond to that. That's the message that, that people need to hear when they are brought to Christ. You know, that, that cross out on the lawn there, that rock cross is there for a reason. It's not just a nice decoration. It declares that we are a cross-centered church. This cross on the wall is here for a reason. And it's the core of the gospel message. So, when we bring people to Christ, then they need to hear the gospel of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in your sermon notes, I've given you a big idea. The big idea is this. The Apostle Andrew models for us an evangelistic mindset as he is responding to needs by bringing people to Christ. And we'll look at these three little vignettes from the Gospel of John, and we will see in each case... There is a problem, there is a solution, and there is an outcome. And in the first first such instance, it's in the first chapter of John, and the setting is this, and we'll read it together in just a moment, but before we read it, I want to get get the background. The nation, the problem is this, a Jewish nation that is looking for its Messiah. And and we go back and we we see... um, that uh, John comes along, uh, John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of the Messiah. The people are longing to, to learn of the Messiah. And, and um, uh, so, um, let's see, I wanted to get the right verses here. Verse 19 says in uh, chapter 1 of John, this is the witness of John, John the Baptist, not the writer of the gospel. When Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? 
And he confessed and did not deny. And he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And so then we find that uh, these are people that are looking for the, the arrival of the Christ, of the Messiah. And, uh, and they're asking, John, are you he? And he says, no, but I'm his forerunner. I am the one who paves the way for him. And it says in verse 20, uh, 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John had followers. John the Baptist had disciples. And we read that um, uh, two of his disciples of John, verse 37, heard him speak. And they followed. Oh, excuse me. I came, let's see, I got ahead of myself in my notes. I'm not used to doing this, see. um. (laughs) It's verse 35 I wanted to notice. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked. And again, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following, and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means Jesus, um, where are you staying? I get the impression... These two, one of them was Andrew, and the other is unnamed. And these men, they now have contact with Jesus. And John has identified Jesus as the one for whom he's the forerunner. And they go to Jesus, and Jesus turns and what are you seeking? And it's like they didn't know what to say. They said, well, uh, where are you staying? I mean, <laughs> that didn't seem to be the biggest question. Uh, but it's so they, I get the impression they kind of blurted that out. And so he took them. You notice it says, um, he said to them, come, come and you will see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, the tenth hour, the day began at 6 a.m. So 10 hours is later, 4 p.m. The day is, you know, fairly well along. And it, I get the impression that at 4 p.m. or so, they went with Jesus and they went and stayed with him. And they spent time with him there where he was dwelling. And then, then we come to this. And let's read this with me, will you? Okay? In unison, we'll read this. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, which to us, to the Greek-speaking person, Peter means rock. And so Jesus is saying, Peter, he said, or Simon, is you're a rock. And in that statement, I think he's foretelling something of the prominence that Peter is going to have in the early church. So, in your sermon outlines, I'm saying that that Andrew responded to his own newfound faith by bringing his brother 
to Jesus. The problem, they're looking for the Messiah. The solution, they learn that Jesus is the one. And on that same day, and it's interesting, apparently, you know, if you go to somebody's house at 4 o'clock, spend some time with them, time goes on and so on, you get well on into the evening, I'm sure there were a lot, of, there was, I wish I knew the conversation that took place there, but there must have been a lot of it. But before the day is over, because it says in verse 43, the next day, some other things happen, but in this same day, it says he found first his brother Simon. After his time, Andrew, after Andrew's time with Jesus, he goes, he finds his brother, he says, he says, Simon, we have found the Messiah. Come here. And the, and the explanation, which means Christ, he didn't have to tell him that. That's for the benefit of us readers. Okay, he says, we found the Messiah. Come on. And that very evening, that night, whatever, however late it was, he took him to Jesus. It, there was a sense of urgency about it. You know, there's a guy in our Monday morning Bible study who has recently put his faith in Christ as his Savior. Uh, he was going to be here today, but he called me yesterday and said, I have another appointment, can't be there. But anyway, he, uh, he was just telling me uh, oh, about two weeks ago, he said, I had a conversation with my son who has never had any interest in spiritual things. And he says, we talked for two hours about the Lord. And, I, and inside of myself, I'm saying, praise God. What an evidence of the reality of newfound faith when you want to tell the people that are closest to you, the people in your family, the, the people around you, you want to share the good news with them. Is that, that's normal. If that's the way it should be. Is, is it that way with you? When you say, well, I'm, I don't have newfound faith. I've been a Christian a long time. Well, there's a tendency, there's a danger that that kind of initial zeal wanes, but, you know, shouldn't it always be there? Shouldn't we always have the eagerness that Andrew had as he brought his brother to Jesus? So, so we see that the outcome is Peter becomes a prominent apostle in the, uh, in the early church and uh, provided great leadership. Who knows what things God has for the plan for that person that we might have, have you know, an influence on. And I, I like to call it being a, being a midwife, being a midwife at the, at the new birth of a, of a new Christian. And uh, as far as we know, as far as the record is given, Peter had far more influence than Andrew did. That's okay with Andrew, I'm sure. Who knows what that person will be or do that we bring that we can bring to Christ. There was this old duffer on our street, a dirty old cheat, being cantankerous seemed his aim, an ornery old cuss, always causing a fuss, didn't have a friend to his name. A cigarette puffer, this degenerate old duffer, he always flicked the butts on my place. He used language so vile that it prompted denial that he belonged to the same human race. A real born loser, this hard, a hard liquor boozer, sobriety he seemed to elude. This old duffer was mean, his body unclean, and a frown seemed to sum up his mood. Now, neighbor Dale, one night, said, Hey, the timing is right to present this old duffer the word. The neighbors all said, Dale, you're out of your head. Your idea is simply absurd. But with Bible in hand, he proceeds as planned 
to the old duffer's door, and he knocks. Now he's met with a scowl and language so foul that it shook old Dale down to his socks. Old Dale mustered a grin and and started right in by reading a passage or two. Now the old duffer was furious, but still he was curious. He's going to wait till old Dale is through. Dale just kept reading on from the Gospel of John, and the old duffer just stood there and stared. Well, it was easy to see that this surely must be the first time that someone had shared. When Dale came to the place where it told of God's grace and how not all necessarily must die, the old duffer's expression turned from that of depression and a small tear had formed in his eye. With veritable ease, he slipped to his knees and his head was just kind of bent. Now, not being near, you couldn't quite hear. The only audible word was repent. Together they prayed. As Dale gently laid his hand on the old duffer's head, a decision had been made. The price had been paid. Another soul had been claimed from the dead. A happy ending, you say, in more than one way. The neighbors were jumping with glee. But I was the gladdest of all that Dale made that call. You see, that old duffer was me. The guy who wrote this, who now, well, when this was written some time ago, was a member, had become a member of an evangelical free church in San Clemente, California. It says, uh, the, the uh, pastor in telling about this said that the old duffer read this, his own testimony in a Sunday service, and uh, the congregation, entire congregation was deeply moved and sensed the God's presence in this message from his heart. Sometimes conversion happens right away, like in the case of the old duffer. He hears the gospel and he responds. For some, it takes a long time. You know, each situation is different, but by the grace of God, people, when the word of God is proclaimed, respond to that word in whatever ways the the spirit of God leads. And conversion, when the timing is right, takes place. But it takes someone to share whether newfound or well-worn faith. It takes our sharing the gospel and bringing others to Jesus. That's evangelism. Now, in the, in the second case that we see, it's in the sixth chapter of John, and uh, we're on fairly familiar t- uh, ground, I think, when we come to this passage, because uh, it's this account of the feeding of the 5,000. But I want to ask you to, first I want to, I want to give a little uh, more background to that in, in Luke's gospel. All four gospels give the record of the feeding of the 5,000 miraculously. And, but in uh, Luke, there's a little more detail given because it says in Luke 9 and 11, uh, Jesus began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. And the, ba- the day began to decline And the 12 came and said, you know, we need food. Uh, The point I wanted to see there is there has been a day of teaching and healing that takes place out there with this crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children. Large crowd out there. Now, that's the setting that we have. And the problem now, then, is it's been a long day. People are hungry. 
And, uh, but before we go on with the story, I want you to employ your imagination a little bit. You know, it's good to have a little sanctified imagination. There's a little boy in this story. Only John tells us, of the four accounts, only John tells us about the little boy. Now, I imagine a kid... Uh, the term that is used that is translated lad indicates probably a, a preteen guy. I, I think a 10, 11, 12-year-old boy is, is what I picture. And the crowd is going to go out there to hear Jesus speak, and, and they learn of healings and so on. And the little boy says, Mom, Mom, I want to go. And she, like all mothers do, say, No, you can't. Uh, <laughs> no, but I want to. And she says, Okay, but you're not going without a lunch. And, uh, you know, she, being a responsible mom, packs up this little lunch. It's five loaves. They're probably little, like, dinner rolls. And a couple of dried fish. Not big fish, little fish. And, um, and uh, so she, he gets this little lunch, and I don't know that they had pockets or, or stuck it into his robe or whatever it was. Anyway, he has this little packet of food, and off he goes. Now, as a 10-, 12-year-old kid in gathering in a crowd, and there's something going on, he has a way of working his way up to the front. We know that he was close to Jesus because he was there to present his lunch. So he gets, he works his way through the crowd, and he's up next to, and this is my imagination, and... There's this guy, Andrew. There's this man, Jesus, that's teaching and healing, and the little boy is listening and watching. And, and there are 12 men that are, seem to be somehow connected with him. And he uh, bumps up against this one guy, and it happens to be Andrew. Well, I say it happens to be. Andrew, this guy that's always bringing, well, always, whenever we see him, is bringing people to Jesus. I think, here's my imagine, says, he sees this guy, and he, you know, Pats him on the shoulder or something, says, hey, buddy, how you doing? And, uh, and there's a little bit of an exchange between them and, and uh, so on. And so there's a little bit of friendship that's formed. Then the little boy hears Jesus say, this is earlier, it says uh, uh, in verse 5, Jesus said to him, where are we to buy bread that, we may, that these may eat? And he was saying this to test him, for he, Jesus himself, <coughs> knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for that. We don't have any way to feed these people. Now, the little boy obviously heard this. And in his childish faith, I mean, this to me is, is Andrew responding to childish faith. And... Uh, and Andrew, the little boy, says to Andrew, I've got this lunch. Jesus could have it. And, and that's where we have this. Look, read it with me. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Okay, my imagination again is that we read it wrong. Because I think... Andrew, caught up in the childish faith of this little boy who's offering the little lunch to Jesus, and there's 5,000 plus people that need to be fed. And I think Andrew comes to Jesus. He said, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but uh, what are they for so many? It seems to me, you know, reality kicks in, and Andrew says, this is stupid. (laughs) Bring in this little lunch? But Jesus took it. And from it worked a miracle. 
So the solution was for Jesus to miraculously multiply this little lunch and feed the multitude with it. Imagine, once more, here's my imagination, still working. The little boy, when the meeting is over, rushes home, rushes through the door of the house, and he says, Mom, Mom! You'll never believe what happened. It was my lunch. She says, what, did you lose your lunch? No, no. No, I gave it away. You gave it away? Yes. Who did you give it to? I gave it to Jesus. And you know what he did with it? You'll never guess what he did with it. He worked a miracle and he fed the multitude with that little lunch that you gave me. I mean, is that a reasonable imagination? I think it's reasonable. My imagination sees this little boy growing to manhood. He's now a dad. He sets his kids down and says, kids, let me tell you about this. And he tells the story. He becomes a grandfather. He sets his grandchildren down and says, let me tell you. He never tires through his lifetime to tell what God has done through his childish faith. You know, God can do some mighty miracles through what we bring. And, well, what is it? Oh, I wanted to go to Luke chapter 18, where I read this. Um, verse 15. They were bringing even their, a different setting, of course. They were bringing even their babies to Jesus in order that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me. Stop hindering them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it at all. Simple faith. Simple faith. Childish faith is what we're called on. And to feed that childish faith. You know, time for a commercial. John has already mentioned, we're coming up on our new Sunday school year looking for people to work with kids. Looking for people to work with the children's church and in the ministries of our church. And it's a great thing to bring children to Christ. I remember hearing the story of Dale Moody came home from a meeting one evening and he said to his wife, well, he said there were two and a half conversions. And she says, what, two adults and a child? No, 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 he said, two children and an adult. The kids, the kids have their whole life to give to Jesus. The adults, that, you know, life is half gone. Win the kids, win the kids. Your own kids and the kids in the neighborhood, the kids in the church, win the kids. Well, let's look at one more situation. And this is probably, uh, this is, I shouldn't say probably, this is the least detailed of these, it's the 12th chapter of John. <clears throat> and here's the setting. The setting is uh, Passover. And the earlier part of chapter 12 of John tells about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. You know, the day that we call Palm Sunday. Jesus is the focal point. And pilgrims are gathered from all over the Mediterranean world, as was the case. Jews and Jewish proselytes, non Jews ethnically, who had become Jews religiously, proselytes, people are gathered together at Jerusalem. The focus is on Jesus, who has come in and has been recognized by many as the Messiah, as the King. 
there were certain Greeks in that group. And uh, here we find Jesus responding, or we find Andrew responding to the curious. And let's read this passage, shall we? It's up here. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, we're kind of left hanging in a sense, because, you know, I, I read it and I, I wish it said, and Jesus said to these Greeks, come here, let me speak to you, and so on, but we don't have that in, in the text. Uh, not exactly, anyway. But uh, these certain Greeks that had come, and I'm thinking they're proselytes because they've come to, uh, to worship at the feast, and uh, they learn about Jesus and they want to, they want to meet him. So uh, the problem is that, that, that they don't have a way to Jesus, so they come to Philip. Now, why did they come? Philip was one of the twelve. Why did they come to Philip? Well, some have surmised it was because Philip had a Greek-sounding name, and that's true. The, Philip was a well-known name among the Greeks. There had been a king in the second century B.C. who was a King Philip. In fact, Alexander the Great, who had lived some time prior to this, his father was named Philip, and so Philip has a Greek ring to it. So maybe that's why these Greeks went to Philip. I don't know. So Philip goes to Andrew. Why did Philip go to Andrew? Well, maybe it's because Andrew has a reputation for having a way about bringing people to Jesus. So Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go to Jesus, and they went and told Jesus. Now, we're not told specifically what Jesus' response to them was, but the next words are these, that Jesus answered them. Now, he is either answering Uh, the multitude of verse 12 that had gathered together, or the Pharisees that are referred to in verse 19 who are approaching him, or the Greeks that that are seeking him. We don't know who the them is in this passage, but Jesus answered them saying, and he gives a message, a salvation message, an evangelistic message, because he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I think there's there's a reference to resurrection there, that the seed that is planted springs forth. But then he says, he who loves his life loses it. He who lives an ego centered life is, that's all he gets. In the end, he loses it. But, And he who hates his life, he who has no regard for his own life, but loses his life in Jesus is the implication here. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. So these Greeks hear the message and they hear a message that says, stop being self-centered, become Christ-centered, you will have eternal life. That's evangelism. It's Philip bringing these people so they might, they might hear the word of the Lord. Did they respond to that? I don't know. When you share the gospel with people and you don't have any further contact with them, 
Did they respond to it or not? We don't know. But we put the word out there and leave the results to God. Now, sometimes we have opportunity to follow up and follow up and follow, and that's good. But sometimes there's the one-time opportunity to make the gospel known. We need to take it and leave the results to the Lord. Andrew brought the Greeks to Jesus. That's evangelism. Andrew brought the child to Jesus. That's evangelism. Andrew brought his Peter, his brother Peter to Jesus. That's evangelism. Now, another commercial. And uh, we avoided, I, uh, this, is, this is in the bulletin, but I need to make a clarification on it. Here's an idea that your elders have kicked around, and we want to put it out to you. Thanksgiving is coming in November. Traditionally, we've had a nice Thanksgiving dinner here on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and what I'm going to say now doesn't mean we won't do that anyway anymore. We may very well do that. But what do you think? What would you think about our church preparing a huge Thanksgiving dinner, turkey and mashed potatoes and dressing and all the trimmings, and presenting it as a gift to our community. The bulletin suggests um, at this place, the, the elders have, have talked about someplace off-site, perhaps the Green Bank Farm or something. But we put together, and we have the resources to do it with our, with our outreach funds. So the money is there. And we, as a congregation, we, provide, we prepare this big meal, and we say to the Green Bank community, come one, come all, we want to feed you Thanksgiving dinner. No strings attached. What did I hear? <laughs> okay. Okay. No strings attached, but an opportunity to say to our community, we love you. You know, we tell them that when we provide the kids' carnival down there. We did that last fall, and I think we're going to do it again when we do this uh, uh, fall festival thing right here in the church. This is another opportunity. But you know what it takes? It takes some people. It takes some people who are going to say, that is a great idea. I am willing to work on that and be a part of it. Now, I challenge you to talk about it among yourselves, talk about it at home, talk about it in your smaller groups. But, you know, November is not so far away and it takes some planning, so we need to get with it and we need to plan it. And we, I think it's a great idea. <laughs> I was the one that brought it up to the elders. <laughs> So I guess I better be saying, well, count on me. I'll do my part. But, you know, I'm not going to roast a turkey. You don't want that. But, uh, but I'll help any way I can. But it takes some people. Now, I'm throwing it out there. That's the end of commercial. Do with it as the Lord leads you. But if you're responding to it, soon speak to me, speak to any of our elders, speak to Pastor Jim and say, good idea. I'm willing to be a part of it. Okay. Just one little story, and we're done. This story comes from long ago. It's from my sister, Lorraine. Some of you have met her. She's been here. And uh, she tells, I wrote it down years ago. Here's the way it goes. Uh, she tells of how one Mother's Day, years ago, she and our parents, who had recently returned from a winter in Arizona, agreed to meet another sister, Linda, and her husband, Dick, and their four children. Now, some of you remember my nephew, Matt Schmeezing, the red-haired guy that was a part of our congregation. He was, at this time, he was a little kid, so you see, it's a long time ago. Anyway, they all arrived at this certain restaurant, 
exchanged the usual greetings, and then they waited in line to be seated. The restaurant was very busy, and it happened to be a truck stop. And Lorraine noticed that while waiting in line, four-year-old Ryan, which would be Matt's brother, marched into the area where truckers were eating. And he approached a burly fellow who was busy eating his meal and said, Hi, I'm Ryan. What's your name? And he got a friendly answer. And then little Ryan asked, Do you know my grandma? The trucker answered, Well, I don't think so. And without another word, Ryan turned and he walked over to his grandma, my mom, who had her back uh, turned toward him. And he wrapped his arms around her legs And she turned and returned his embrace and said a few nice words, and and that was that. Ryan returned to the trucker, who had been watching, and he said simply, See, isn't she nice? (laughs) The lesson. Oh, how we need to go to people and say, Do you know my Lord? And then display a relationship that allows us to return later and say, See, isn't he nice? Our lives, if we're going to share the gospel with people, we need to be living lives that are consistent with that gospel and so that our life can display that relationship so we can come back and say, See, isn't he nice? You know, just this morning in my own devotions, I came across a passage in Isaiah And the passage in Isaiah chapter 8 says this about the people of God. And and it's this, Behold, I, the, the prophet is writing, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts. We are the people that God has has called together, we are for signs and wonders among the people with whom we live. That's another way of saying we need to live in such a way that God will be at work in our lives and, and we'll be able to see, see, isn't he nice? Isn't he good? That's evangelism. Our Father, we thank you that we've been able to think together a little bit today about Andrew And I pray that the thoughts that have generated from those considerations will be helpful to us who know you, that we might live in such a way that our lives will be like signs and wonders to the people around us, displaying the reality of a relationship with Christ that is fully satisfying and gives to us the assurance that we have a reason to live this life and we have hope for eternity. Lord, I pray that you will help us to exercise evangelism by bringing people to Christ and in the energy and the power of the Holy Spirit, certainly not ours, but in your power and in your might, that you will then draw people to yourself for your glory. Through Christ our Savior we pray. Amen.